0: welcome
1: to life death and the space between podcast i'm your host dr amy robbins i'm a licensed clinical psychologist in medium and here we explore life death consciousness and what it all means today i have peter russell joining us peter has a new book out called letting go of nothing i have right here Um, And Peter is an author, speaker, and leading thinker on consciousness and contemporary spirituality. Russell, or Peter, says Russell, but Peter earned a first class honors degree in theoretical physics and psychology, as well as a master's degree in computer science at the University of Cambridge, England. He also studies meditation and Eastern, he also studied meditation and Eastern philosophy in India the author of 12 books, including Waking Up in Time and From Science. His new book, Letting Go of Nothing, Relax Your Mind and Discover the Wonder of Your True Nature is out now. Welcome, Peter.
0: Thank you, lovely to be here with you.
1: Thank you all for continuing to listen to the podcast, for sharing the podcast, for following me on Instagram, for following me on YouTube and Fireside. So if you don't know what those things are, you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. That is where I am most active. So if you DM me on Facebook or another platform, even though I have an account, chances are you will not hear back from me for quite some time. Also, if you want to get in touch with me, if you have a story to share, please email me at dramyrobbins at gmail.com. I want to thank anybody who has already contributed to my Patreon page. Every Little Bit helps me continue to make this podcast great for all of you, and I have so many... So many people still on my list that I want to reach out to and continue to provide you all with great content that helps you learn and grow and that helps me learn and grow, frankly. So if you can contribute, please head over to Patreon and just put in my name and my um, Patreon page will pop up and you can donate any amount. Like I said, any little bit helps. You can also find me right now on YouTube if you want to watch my interviews you can also find me on Fireside Live, which has been so fun. My audiences are still pretty small over on Fireside, so it really does give people the opportunity to ask questions of my guests. I have some great episodes coming up that you will want to check out. And part of how you're going to be learning about my episodes is that I am recommitting to my newsletter, which I have been remiss to be doing lately. So I apologize for those of you who are... Uh, our subscribers you have not gotten anything from me in quite some time but that is changing so what you can expect if you do subscribe to my newsletter is a weekly update with the show notes and transcripts from my current episode and also a little bit of a calendar as to what's to come so you can mark your calendars for my upcoming fireside episodes that you might want to be a part of and partake in also you will still be getting that soul wisdom Uh, As you all uh, have probably heard, I am going to be trying to go deeper into my own spiritual work in the next couple weeks, months ahead. And as part of that, really digging into my soul wisdom and really trying to meditate and bring whatever information comes to me in meditation to you all as well, because I believe that whatever I hear is collective for all of us to hear. So you can subscribe to that at dramyrobins.com as well. I've got a new website coming, so lots of exciting stuff coming that I don't want anybody to miss. So here is today's episode. I'm excited for what I know is going to be a really inspirational conversation about helping us understand this concept of letting go. So I feel like this is actually not a super easy concept because we're human. Um, and so a lot of this feels real theoretical versus practical. So can you help us break this down and understand how we can incorporate letting go into our daily existence?
0: Yes, yes. I think part of the problem is, is if, if the something we want to let go of, say it's um, it's a feeling we're having about somebody that we know, you know, some judgment or something or some anger or some attachment, some desire, we think of letting go as actually sort of somehow getting rid of it, trying to sort of not think about it anymore, not feel it anymore, j- just to let it go. Um, But the problem is you can't sort of do letting go. We're already doing too much because we're attached to whatever it is we're feeling or thinking. So it's really about dissolving the attachment. And the attachment is all to do with how we see things. It's really about what's called mindsets. We we get stuck in a certain mindset. This is really important. You know, my judgment about this person is really important, or my desire for this is really important. So it's really about letting go of the mental attachment. It's not letting go of the thing, but it's it's basically about a change of mind. And what I found over the years is to take a different approach from the normal one, and that is to actually really delve into the holding on, to notice to notice the experience of holding on, to actually allow it in rather than trying to get rid of it. Do the opposite to allow it in. Um, I take the analogy of if you're holding a small rock in the air, you know, in your hand, you're holding on to it. If I tell you to let go, what happens is your mind goes to it. You feel the tension in your hand. You let the tension relax and the rock falls. And I find it the same with the mind. If we can begin to experience the tension, begin to experience the feelings in the body that come from holding on, and also begin to experience what's going on in our mind, the more we open up to it and allow it in, the letting go begins to happen on its own. It just begins to soften and dissolve. It isn't like an instant Mm -hmm. thing, sometimes it is, but more, it just begins to soften. as it softens, we begin to feel easier and we begin to get more relaxed. And so it's a process which happens, but by, I say, by doing the opposite, by actually allowing in what we're actually experiencing, and most importantly, allowing in what is going on in the body, like the, what is actually happening mm-hmm. here, and actually allowing ourselves to sort of be curious and notice what's happening in the body with whatever we're holding on to, the experience.
1: So. I have people ask me often in my clinical practice, like, what does it really mean to feel your feelings or to experience your feelings? And this sounds like this is what you're talking about.
0: It is. It's, it's part it's part of it. Um, what people tend to do is say, you know, what are you feeling? We go to the head and say, what am I feeling? Oh, mm-hmm. I'm, feeling, um, I'm feeling upset. I'm feeling frustrated. It's like we go to the head. We put a label on it. For me, it's 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 not going to the head at all. It's going going to your noticing what is actually happening. Oh, there's a there's a tightness in my chest. Oh, I feel a sort of you know I'm feeling a sort of like oh maybe there's a quivering in my legs or there's a sort of I feel something in the throat. But go to the body. Go to the body and and more than just like you know a superficial thing like if you're angry like oh I notice my fists are clenched. Okay, that's that's a good start. But then be curious like. What else is going on that I haven't noticed? So you begin to sort of get into a, a mode of being interested, sort of almost exploring what is going on, noticing the different sensations. And it's interesting because we use the word feeling both for an emotion and for a sensation in the body. Like, I, you know, I feel a, a warmth or a prick or something. So it's, it's actually noticing what is the actual feeling that's going on at the same time as the emotions there but actually tuning, tuning into the body, not trying to put a label on it, just, but noticing the actual experience. Mm.
1: So just like I noticed tightness in my neck.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And but then you can even go further. Like, what is the tightness like? You know, whereabouts is it? Mm-hmm. What sort of, how's it feel? You know, how large is it? What's it act? how would I, you know, well, how would I describe the tightness? Oh, it's a sort of, it's a dull ache or oh, it's a pricking feeling, Wh- whatever it is, just, just exploring it, like as if this is the first time you will ever noticed the tightness in your neck, and you were trying to describe it to someone. So you need to get in there.
1: So how does that help in moving us towards letting go?
0: I see it as the first step in letting go. It's say the first step for me is letting in, and then I'd say that and, and allowing it to be there. It's like letting in and letting be. So what we're doing is we're reducing the resistance. So often with letting go we have this resistance to something, this resistance to experiencing what it is fully or understanding what is going on. Because of this attitude, we're trying to get rid of something. There can be a background resistance. And it's it's that resistance that partly holds things in place. So when we're letting go, we're actually letting go, first of all, of the resistance itself. So by noticing what's going on in the body, we're beginning to relax that. We're, we're going to have a more relaxed attitude to the feeling. And that, to me, is the key in allowing our attachment, our holding on to things. It's allowing it to soften, allowing it to relax.
1: Mm-hmm. And anybody can do this. Like I'm just thinking about how this works for people who have. Maybe they're just holding so much in their body. They're holding trauma. They're holding anxiety. They're holding depression. They're holding all of these intense feelings, and they can't even begin to separate out. Like they don't even know what a body feeling well feels like, let alone like a body with aches and pains. They they don't have that frame of reference. So how, how do you encourage them letting go and opening up?
0: I think, um, and this is, I suspect this is something you do a lot in your practice, but I, I think, you know, just taking baby steps, I think is always important. Okay. You know, what is the dominant, what is the dominant thing here? Rather rather try and get hold of everything. Like, what is the where does your attention go? What, what do you notice? Okay, just just be with that and just notice that. Not trying to get the whole thing, but just just be interested in what what whatever comes to the top surface, I think is the best way to start, rather than trying to, you know, do the whole thing at once. Mm-hmm. As, as you say, a lot of it can be from trauma, from other stuff that's going on, or it could just be, you know, some physical thing, some physical tension or something. But just I I take baby steps and just just being willing to explore, I think what what can often happen in the situations you're talking about is people are, people are so scared. Oh my God! If I do this, all hell's going to break loose. So I think you know, it's like just just take a little step, just just mm-hmm. try yeah. it out a little bit, right?
1: That it's going to be too much and overwhelm
0: them, right? And so a baby step, you will be like, oh, no, okay, that's not complete. That's, that doesn't completely overwhelm me. All hell doesn't break loose, so. So you gradually develop the skill of actually tuning into your body. Because I think there's so much information held in the body. Mm-hmm. The more we can tune into that, the better.
1: Well, and there's so much research coming out now about how our bodies are holding all this information and how our body our bodies is, are keeping keeping the score. To quote the book, "The Body Keeps the Score." Yeah. Um, Uh, So there was this quote I came across in your book that really sort of stuck out to me. And it said, we set ourselves apart from every other creature by spending most of our time in discontent. Yes. That was so (laughs) striking to me and quite sad to me. And I think so really resonated with me because I feel like. It's more now than ever, but certainly always there. Like our default network is in the negative.
0: Yeah. Yes. Um, I think you know what. If just you know, step back a bit from what behind that statement is. What we're looking for in life, you could say, is is to feel content beneath everything we do, we're actually looking for to feel happier. I use the word contentment, but to feel happier, to feel more at peace, to feel more at ease. We want to avoid pain and suffering. So basically, what we're looking for is to is to feel okay, to feel content. But then what happens in our culture, which doesn't happen to animals, is we get into our minds. And this is where the attachment comes in. Mm-hmm. We get attached to what is going to make us Content, you know, or if I just if I just had this or whatever it is, I had a better home, or if the weather were better today, or whatever it is, we start creating discontent. I mean, there's times when discontent is completely natural. If you if you went outside and it's cold and pouring with rain and you haven't got the right clothes, you're going to feel unhappy. You're going to feel miserable. I mean, that's the general label of discontent, and so you do something about it. So discontent is a motivation to actually do something to keep us safe to improve our well-being. But most of our discontent is self-created. We're imagining problems that probably don't even exist, may never exist, or we get discontent over what happened yesterday, or that wasn't so good, did I make a fool of myself, whatever it is. So we're creating discontent the whole time. And that's why we spend you know most of our time in discontent, whereas you know, I love watching dogs. I mean, they're one of my favorite animals you know it'll be discontent suddenly you know if something happens you step on its paw it'll be discontent for a moment or something but they soon go back to feeling okay again and they you know they're resting you know and state of contentment whereas we hold on to stuff oh you know that person stopped trod, trod, trod on my foot yesterday you know oh my, you know I wish they hadn't done that they were a silly person why couldn't they be more careful so we start doing all this stuff in our minds and it's almost ironical that, you know, we create all the discontent. And the discontent is about how can I be happy in the future? We're so busy worrying about whether or not we're gonna be happy in the future, we never give ourselves the chance to actually be content in the present moment. It's it's a sad it's a sad thing about humanity. But I think it comes from the fact, you know, that we get into our imagination, our thinking. We spend too much time in our heads in that sense. Mm-hmm
1: well and i'm just thinking about with kids i've noticed this with myself i have three three children and my it's only become more apparent to me as my older two got older and i still had a little one and what i notice is he'll have a fight or an argument or something with a friend and in my mind i'm thinking oh my gosh this kid is never going to want to play with him again and then i'll say something to my son and It's like it didn't even phase him like that was that was just sort of in and out. It was an experience and they have moved on from it. And as an adult, I'm projecting all of my fears and concerns. Is this kid going to think he's mean? Is he you know, was he mean? Was you know, was this kid mean? What is this going to mean? They're not going to be friends anymore. You know, we tell ourselves all these stories about this and then it's it's like no they've just moved on and so it seems like this shift happens what around like eight or nine ten maybe that we start to recognize that there is like long-standing discontent of the possibility of things being different than they are
0: yes i think i think i i think almost like there's a belief system we're hypnotized into i think in our culture which is if you're not feeling okay do something about it, get something, change something. And that that belief system is continually encouraging discontent. And so it almost feels natural to feel discontent. It, it, the natural thing, I think the natural state of mind is to feel content. But it feels not so much natural. It feels normal to feel discontent. And so we, we, we pick up, okay, what can I be discontent about next? What can I be happy about? What, what's wrong next? It's like, okay, so finally you let go of the kid, but then it's like, oh, I've got to do this show. Will it work out all right or something? We're, you know, It's our thinking. Our thinking is wonderful, but, but then we're wasting the power of thinking on all these what-ifs and if-onlys that go on in our well, mind. Yeah,
1: and the other thing I notice is the question like what's wrong. You know, There's yeah. this immediate question of what's wrong. And it's yeah. not what's right. What's right? And if we right. just change that, it seems like that could start to shift even how we're interacting with one another.
0: Right. I think that's really important. And in a way, I mean, many people point out we're sort of hardwired—not hardwired, but we have a tendency to go towards what's wrong, which is a is a natural thing. It's looking after, you know, looking after our safety and security. We want to be on the watch out for any danger. But we need to sort of recognize that a lot of that is actually totally unnecessary, misplaced, and misplaced, and to catch it. And I think, mm-hmm. the great, I think the great inner power we have, the great choice we have at our, finger, our mental fingertips, is we can choose not to follow a particular thought. When we catch ourselves thinking a thought and seeing the mind wandering off onto some complaint or fantasy or something, is to say, okay, thank you. You know, almost like, thank you for trying to take care of me. But right now, I'm just not going to follow you anymore. We can actually choose not to follow a thought. It may come back. But when we choose not to follow a thought anymore, in that moment, you know, we find ourselves just being more present. What is going on? Oh, I was missing the sound of the wind in the trees or the traffic or whatever it is. We come back to being present. And when we stop following a thought that's causing discontent, in that moment, we stop following there's a sense of ease and relief. And we realize sometimes, oh my God, I was putting so much energy into that. And so whenever we stop following a particular line of thought in that moment, the fact we feel more at ease, more content, is is a reinforcement. It's like that becomes the motivation. Oh, I must remember to do this. And so we know, we begin to know that when we stop following a thought, we stop creating that particular discontent and we fall back into a feeling of just feeling more more at ease in ourselves, more relaxed.
1: You make it sound so easy, but I know how, how complicated it can be for people, particularly, I'm just thinking of, again, the field I'm in, when people have one sort of discontented thought. Is that the word, discontented? Discontented thought after another. It's like, how do you get out of that?
0: yeah um and it also it's not to say those thoughts won't come back it's more just in in the moment when it happens in the moment just it, i find just pausing you know for a couple of seconds that's all, all it needs is just you know you're thinking something just say okay right now i'm not going to follow you it'll come back but just pausing in that moment just choosing in that moment and as i say noticing noticing what happens noticing how it feels and and then you're off again another thought or the same mm-hmm. thought and so it becomes a practice. And I th- you can think of it as like a sort of a miniature meditation. I sometimes call them micro meditations, you know, we're just stepping out of the thought just for a moment. That's all it takes. But just and to do that as as often as you can. I mean, I have little notes pinned around the house just saying pause. And whenever mm-hmm. I, you know, walking up there's one on the staircase right now. If I'm walking up the staircase, I see it. I'll stop. Just for a moment, I'm just like, okay. Right. now, what was I going to do? And then do it. Things like that, just finding ways just to, I say it's baby steps again, but just developing a practice of being able to just step out of the thought in the moment. It's not about getting rid of it. It's, it's going to keep coming back. But the more you do it in the moment, the more it becomes easier to do it.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So can we shift for a minute here? And let's talk about ego.
0: Absolutely, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so what is your definition of ego?
2: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello,
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve
0: today. Right. Um, I see ego really as as a mode of thinking. We think of ego as a sense of like who I am, that sort of thing you know our identity with our, with the world with how we are in the world but also you know we talk about ego as egotistical thoughts egotistical you know behavior etc i see ego it relates to what we were talking about in a way i see it as just a it's a mindset it's, it's a way of thinking about things that has our personal safety security well-being behind it so it's it's a way of thinking that is actually geared towards keeping this organism safe, alive, um, and it gets into socially, you know, respected by other people, etc. But it's not a thing. When I look inside myself, I don't find a thing called ego. I find a sense of me, a sense of presence, and I notice thoughts and feelings, etc. And it's the it's the egocentric thinking that that is what we label ego. And seeing it as a way of thinking, again, makes it an easier thing to work with, rather than thinking it's something I've got to get rid of or conquer, and it's getting in the way, rather than thinking it's as an enemy, I think of ego as an ally. It's something that's mm. trying to help us in the world. But as I was saying earlier, most of the time it's triggered completely unnecessarily and it's getting in our way. So the same it's the same thing as um just choosing when you notice it not not to get caught up in it anymore, not to follow it. And I mean the two things. Two, two things that really is a sign that you're caught in egoic mode is that that egoic mode should be very insistent. You must do this. You must do this. Whatever it is, that's really important. And its job is to be insistent, because its real job is to keep you safe and survive. And so it needs to be insistent. Like if there's a truck coming down the street at you, it doesn't want to be thinking, I need to calculate its velocity and how fast I can move. and Maybe Maybe it's you know it's going to be okay. <laughs> that security mechanism needs to say, "Get out the way, quick!" And so it needs to be <laughs> insistent. So when we notice that there's an insistent thought, you know, uh, that's always a you know an opportunity for me to say, "Hang on, what's going on here? Like, you know, is there another way of, of looking at this situation?" And the other thing is, when we're caught in egoic thinking, there's nearly always a sense of tension there somewhere in the mind, a sense of tension around it. And so noticing that tension. So when I notice that. Is then just saying, okay, and because the ego is a, it's a way of seeing things that comes out of that background of keeping us safe and secure, I just like to ask, okay, could there be another way of seeing this? Which is like saying, okay, the ego has its way of seeing things, but just to pause and say, could there be another way of looking at this situation? And often, you know, something comes up which is surprising, but tends to be a lot more um, compassionate and... Um, mm. again, brings, brings a sense of more peace rather than discontent. Mm. But basically, I mean, to answer your question, I see ego not as a thing we have, but as a mode of thinking we get caught up in.
1: It's not a thing we have, it's a mode of thinking. So there is no getting rid of ego.
0: No, it's going to be a mode of thinking that comes back and, and it's learning the skill to recognize it and step out of it. And and at the same time, when we step out of it, we come back to noticing this sense of, you know, I the I that's always there. There's always this sense of I-ness, I call it me-ness that's there. That's the same sense of I that was there yesterday, 10 years ago, you know, as far back as I can remember in my life, that sense of I never changes. Our identity with who we are, and what we do, all that changes, but rec- beginning to recognize ah yes it's like for me it's like ah here i am when i step out of being caught up in some train of thought it's like as well as noticing the present you know here is here's the present moment it's like and here i am the one that is experiencing this here i am mm. and the more we get in contact with that I, that what i call you know the true eye that's always there the less need there is to get caught up in the ego identity okay did theoretical
1: physics talk about all of this? No. Okay. I'm very curious. <laughs> That's how I what... got into
0: all this. I mean, I was I was fascinated by theoretical physics and mathematics. It was, I thought it was my life, you know, early on. Uh, I saw a career in that. I, I was, in the, ended up working with the very, very first visual displays in computing, et cetera, many, many years ago. And, which leads to us talking now on the phone, um, and I realized that theoretical physics, it was never going to tell me why we are conscious. It could maybe ultimately explain everything that's going on in the world, mm. but it's the one thing it couldn't explain was why I was conscious and the whole of theoretical physics takes place in the mind and it all takes place in consciousness. You know, we're, we're weighing up information. We're trying out theories. We're coming to conclusions. It all takes place in the mind. And yet it cannot explain the existence of mind in which physics happens. It was like, what is going on here? There's something wrong with the whole system. So the thing that takes place in the
1: mind cannot explain how it takes place in the mind.
0: Yeah, yes, it, it it cannot even explain why there's mind. Theoretical physics cannot even explain why we are conscious. We should all just be biological robots doing our stuff. But why do we have a subjective experience of it all? And so I started realizing, that's why I went into neuroscience, and that didn't answer the question. And I realized the people who really were studying consciousness were those who did it firsthand. You know, you need to actually dive inside. and They were the, you know, people like Jung, Carl Jung was pioneering with that. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, a lot of the, you know, monks, meditators, those sorts of people who are, you know, sitting just to explore the mind from an internal point of view. And so that led me into really becoming fascinated by consciousness and how our own consciousness works. And that led into, you know, more understanding meditation. And that's, you know, part of where the letting go came in. But as I began to explore myself and looking at myself and what happens in myself, that was that was where the teacher was in terms of understanding consciousness. And so, in a way, everything in the book has come out not of reading other people's stuff. But like, this is my experience of of what I've noticed working with my own mind.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and I found it's so hard to describe because for me personally, like as you're talking, I'm like trying to think about how this applies in my life and how I use it. And it's such a process You know, it's like you start to engage in whether it be therapy or meditation and you start to recognize, okay, this is this is my ego driving this. And then you can start to take a step back. But it's not like all, you know, you go to one meditation course and suddenly it's it's you know, you're there. Um, It's just over time you start to recognize that you're not as reactive to life. You're just sort of standing back and saying, okay, that happened, this happened, this happened, that happened.
0: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And it comes through just a gradually unfolding greater understanding of yourself and how you work. And for me, it's like, I'm fascinated by it. I think that fascination is like, it keeps me exploring. Oh, oh, wow, oh, that's what happens. That's what happens when I get caught up. in it. Oh, This is what happens when I start judging another person. Oh, oh, I see what's going on in myself. Oh, there's something in myself here that I'm judging, which I'm not mm-hmm. expressing. You know, things like that. It's like, it's a continual process of discovery. But the more we discover what's going on, the less held by it, the less caught up we are in it, the less it, it controls us. And we can, as you say, we can begin to step back and step back. And the more we step back, the more we get more in touch with our authentic self and less controlled or less on, you know, a lot of the time, I think we're on autopilot. Right. You know, all, I say we operate unconsciously. We're not being, we're not consciously choosing. And the more right. we can step back, the more we conscious choices.
1: So talk to me a little bit about the self, because you also talk about praying to the self versus praying to a higher power, so how do you how do you sort of differentiate those two because tomorrow I'm actually recording a podcast with someone we're talking about connecting to your higher self
0: right yeah um yeah I don't like I don't I may mention higher once but I, I don't usually press higher self but more as just the that the the, the true self is that sense of you know, what I was talking about earlier, that sense of being, that sense of, that sense of I am, not I am Peter Russell, author, blah, 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 but just that sense of I am, which is always there. And so it's just, it's connecting to that, which is more just recognizing what is always there, that sense of I am. And mm-hmm. what I was talking, relating that to what's about the prayer, we normally see prayer, the traditional way of seeing prayer is there is, something something I'd like something I like fixed in the world whether it's for me or somebody's healing or whatever it is and I can't do it myself therefore I pray to whatever it is some higher power something spirit whatever it is different things for different people please change this for me heal this person or whatever it is um, what I see with prayer is what needs fixing is not the world but what needs fixing is is how I'm seeing the world. And it's like, so that's where, that's where I need divine intervention is actually in my mind. And so the prayer- You
1: can say that right now? What needs fixing is not the world.
0: (laughs) No, no, in a given situation, supposing- Okay, I think the world
1: needs fixing right now. So so let's break this down.
0: Thank you, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, Give me a chance to make clear on that. Um, if I'm angry at somebody, you know, I could be praying, you know, I, you know, please, you know, make this person a better person. And what actually needs fixing is not them, but what's going on in my mind. And so, you know, the prayer for me, the basic prayer is, you know, could there possibly be another way of, of seeing this? Could there possibly be another way of seeing this? I mean, I know. In relationships I found this works wonders. When I'm you know upset at somebody, it's always I want them to change, they're in the way, whatever it is. And just saying, could there be another way of seeing this? And what happens is usually, well, here's another individual on their own path, struggling, you know, with their stuff. Mm. And what comes is a sense of compassion. So that's what I sort of that's what I find useful as prayer is not to pray for something outside, but to pray for a shift in how I see things. And so what I'm praying to is that deeper sense of self. It's like we have, we all have an inner, I think an inner knowing an inner wisdom, which gets veiled by all our worry, thinking that stuff, it clouds our inner wisdom. And so what I'm doing is just saying, please, to me, to my authentic self, show me a different way of seeing this. And so it's a way of sort of sidestepping the ego mind and allowing mm. my my deeper my deeper sense of wisdom to actually shine through, and and what comes is not an answer so much as just like oh, I'm I begin to see it in a different way, begin to see this person through you know more compassionate eyes or something.
1: Well, and I actually think you know having you break it down that way does help us in in the world. Like the world Absolute, does need to probably, but if we can see it through. Each of our own eyes, rather than seeing someone as other than us, right. we can we can start to have compassion for where they might be coming from, and that right. through that compassion, that will heal.
0: Yeah, yeah. The greater. Yeah, and and one of the things I find useful is recognizing. You know, we were saying you know uh, earlier on in our conversation, I was saying you know deep down, we all want. We all want the same thing. We want to feel okay to be content. None of us wants to be in pain or suffering. To recognize that, that anybody we're interacting with in conversation or any other way, anybody, is just to hold at the back of our mind that they actually want just what we want. They may go Mm -hmm. about it in different ways, but they are another person seeking to, to feel more at ease, to feel relief whatever it is not to feel pain, we all want the same thing deep down. So in in that sense, you know, we all share something in common. Uh, Paths may be different, but that gives us, that's the beginning I think of of a sense of compassion. And if we can go out into the world recognizing that with whoever we're interacting with, it's like, they want the same as me. So how can I, uh, if we're having, you know, a conflict with somebody, it becomes, how can I, how can I, you know, shape what i have to say how can i say this in such a way that the other person doesn't feel attacked and criticized i mean there may be you know critical feedback i need to give but how can i do this in such a way that the other person feels loved and appreciated so that you know after this conversation they actually they feel better for it rather than feel punished or attacked because mm-hmm. that's what they want so it's like how do we give other people that as well in our communication
1: and so what is what do you think about how things are today versus how they were when the Buddha was around? <laughs> I like this chapter in your book.
0: Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I think that the section's called "Did Buddha Have It Easy?" Because mm-hmm. I was saying, you know, just looking at Buddha, you know, he was born a rich prince; he had everything he needed. Um, and... Yeah, for
1: people don't know who don't know the story of Buddha. Okay, can yes. you Can you just tell yeah. them quickly?
0: Yeah, Buddha. He was. He wasn't called the Buddha then. He was a a prince, and he, you know, in a little kingdom in India, he had every everything. But he realized, you know, he still wasn't happy. He was still suffering, and so he left home to go. Did he lose
1: his mother, or is that? Did he lose his mother, or no?
0: I don't think so, but maybe uh, I'm not quite sure. Anyway, the stories get there's different stories around it. (laughs) Different versions. Stories. He went off for six months, six years trying to find teachers, you know, who could help him come to the end of suffering. And he did all these different things, you know, he nearly starved himself to death, tried, you know, all these things. And eventually, you know, woke up after meditation, realized that what caused suffering was the clinging, the holding on to things, you know, where Mm. we started, our attachment to things that cause suffering. And so he realized that letting go was actually the key to, to ending suffering. But the point I was making in the book was like, he wasn't distracted by emails or television or marketing or any of that stuff. He wasn't—he he didn't have stock markets or whatever it is that people worry about. So, in some senses, he had it easy because we are so continually distracted in our culture. And yet, it was hard for him because there were no real spiritual teachers of this sort out there. The spiritual teachings of the time were all about, you know, sacrificing goats and doing penance to the deities and things so he didn't have the teachings whereas you know we today are in the opposite situation we have so many distractions so many things to take care of so many things to worry about which buddha didn't have and on the other hand you know there are so many you know teachings so many different people with wisdom around everywhere you know books videos on the net wherever you go you can find drops of wisdom which buddha didn't have so whereas his search was very hard but he had an easy circumstance. Our circumstances are very distracting, but the search is much easier because there are more and more awake people. And the word Buddha actually just means awake, one one who is awake. Hmm. But don't you think in
1: some ways he had it easier because I feel like because of where we are today, so many people are looking outside of themselves for the answers. And he, even though we tried that, he had no choice but to look inward. Which right. is, I believe, where we find those answers is when we look within ourselves.
0: Absolutely, and I was saying, you know, that was the point of that. Article. He both had it; he both had it easier, and not. And mm-hmm. we both have it easy mm-hmm. in other ways, and not. So yes, mm-hmm. um, he was much more. You know, looking inside himself was, in a way, his whole exploration, and that started off when he was a kid. And he had, you know, the story goes, he had this sort of. Mystical experience one day when he was a child, and that that became the motivation to keep looking mm. inside himself. So he was doing that, but there weren't many guides around to help him do that. So it was like mm-hmm. he was doing that, but it was a frustrating thing. And so we're the opposite. We have so much of our culture tells us to look outside ourselves. That's the way to be happy. He'd already seen through that, but mm. you know. But when we do begin to look inside ourselves, then we have far more. Um, paths and opportunities and things to to help us in that?
1: So... I am going to open it up for questions because we have some people in the audience. I don't know if anybody wants to come up and ask a question. If you do, just go ahead and and raise your hand and I'll bring you up on stage. In the meantime, because we are on Fireside, which is for those who are listening, this amazing new app where you can attend live to my talk, my podcast. Peter, if people are interested in your work, uh, you have a very robust website. Can you tell everybody where they can find you and where they can find out more? about what
0: you do. Right. Yes, I think my website is the best place to start, which is just peterrussell.com, my name, but with two Ls on Russell. If you misspell it with one L, you get sidelined to some typo spotter <laughs> trying to sell you my books. It's two right. Ls on Russell and your and it's a huge site. As you say it's been I've been it's been there for 25 years growing from the very early days it's got probably 400 different pages of articles i've written meditations videos comments little fun things it's yes it's yeah it's all my own sort of fun creation but that's where you can find anything you want my new book letting go of nothing's featured there and thank you and there it is
1: with by the way I don't know what an Eckhart Tolle edition means,
0: but there is a foreword by him. So what does it mean that I have an Eckhart Tolle edition? Eckhart Tolle Tolle, very graciously wrote a foreword to it. And an Eckhart Tolle edition is my publisher has an imprint called Eckhart Tolle edition, the publisher's New World Library. But within that, they have an Eckhart Tolle edition, which is books that he actually likes enough to write a foreword to. And he probably does that once or twice a year. So it's a great feather in the book's cap to have him write a forward to it, which means he actually really likes it. So, so that's what it means. Yes, he wrote a lovely forward to it.
1: Yes, it was, it was, um, it was a great book. Simple, good to keep sort of at your bedside. You, I'm not getting paid to say any of this. Um, But just a great book to kind of reference and and think about simple chapters that you can really revisit and underline, as I always do, and highlight everything. So thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. If anybody, if no one has any questions, I'll give I'll give everybody one more opportunity to hop on and ask.
0: Um, Just to say, you know, what you were saying about the book, it isn't a book of chapters, like chapter one, chapter two, and all that. It's a series of basically over 40 different, very, very short essays, which people, you know, dip into at any time. Most people sort of tend to read one a day sort of thing, and they all follow on from each other. But each one is like a self-contained little um, bit of teaching or advice or whatever perspective.
1: I always get excited when I get a book like this because I try to read all the books on my podcast. And this was, I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) This one feels really manageable. Sometimes I'm like, oh boy, I didn't start this in enough time. (laughs) So thank you everybody for listening today on Fireside. Peter, thank you so much for your time today, for your wisdom, for sharing all these amazing insights. And I hope that each, each listener can take a little nugget of information and start to integrate that into their lives.
0: Lovely. Thank you. Really enjoyed being with you.
1: Thank you. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.